Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with Nikolai Igoti, team lead of Kotlin Native, and we're going to discuss everything around Kotlin targeting native. Hi, Nikolai, and welcome to the show. Hi, Heidi. So I've been wanting to get you on this show for some time, and selfishly, I programmed it that we do it now because, as you know, I'm also preparing a talk for... Um, uh, Kotlin native in, in in a few days, so I'm like, this is going to be perfect timing to you know rehash everything and go through everything and and make sure that everyone has a clear understanding of everything, especially me, and share that story with the world as well. So thanks for coming on, and I'm going to start off by a really simple question, right? Which is, you know, Kotlin was a language that was set out to target the JVM uh, out of primarily it was our own need. Uh, and then we kind of did JavaScript because, well, you know, frankly, everyone is targeting JavaScript and it, and it looked like a potential good platform. But why Kotlin native? What, what was the idea of, you know, now suddenly we need to target Kotlin native? It's an amazing question, actually. And uh, I first I asked it myself about about two years from now. And... Uh, my understanding uh, of the correct answer to this question is that uh, a native uh, landscape actually misses a good uh, high-level language which, uh, uh, which, which is fun to program in. Uh, and also, more practically, um, if we're talking about expanding Kotlin ecosystem, so if we're talking about making better Kotlin, it misses uh, ability to compile to the native platform. So not only managed runtimes like JVM and, J and JavaScript VMs, but also uh, something uh, something like embedded environments or iOS environments, where it doesn't make sense uh, uh, to put uh, a managed runtime for either resource limitation or platform render limitations. Okay, and so and does uh, performance enter the picture here as well then? Uh, yes, actually, the performance part is pretty interesting. Um, uh, most of my career, I was actually working on different runtimes, and a uh, significant part of that was a Java runtime. So, so I'm not that kind of a fun boy who actually believed that Java is slow. Java is not slow. Java has a certain performance characteristics, and uh, native applications also has a certain performance characteristics. They're just different, and uh, Mm, I believe that for good application language, uh, it's uh, pretty nice to have natively compiled binaries just because they have um, better startup characteristics and uh, uh, they, do, they do not uh, impose limitation of the global garbage collection on runtime behavior of the system. Yeah, and I think so, that we can touch on uh, performance a little bit later on because, you know, I mean, oftentimes when... I, I talk about Kotlin native to people. They're like, yes, but forgetting startup time, the JVM is pretty performant, right? Uh, but I think that this is something that we can we can probably get back to. So talking about uh, Kotlin native now, this is targeting multiple platforms, right? And how how exactly is this being done? Uh, we achieve that uh, by uh, relying on existing technologies that is on LLVM and. LVM is actually a very interesting project, and 
uh, now it reached certain level of maturity and it's been uh, used uh, by Apple a lot. So, um, uh, so it has a good uh, intermediate representation called LVM bit code, and it also has a pretty good and optimizing code generators for for particular platforms, uh, like for x86, for ARM, uh, for MIPS. So, so we we rely on, upon uh, existing existing uh, tool chains to actually create uh, binaries. And we do our job on on, pre, on uh, preparing uh, appropriate input for that tool. That's it. We translate the Kotlin into uh, into the bit code and provide the runtime for Kotlin to run. So okay. that's our contribution. And for those not familiar with LLVM, can you just briefly say what that is? I mean, you mentioned it's a tool chain, right? But uh, yeah. a little bit beyond Our, that. Originally, LLVM was called like low-level virtual machine although it's not a virtual machine by any means. Uh, current LVM is essentially a, a compiler creation toolkit, which allows you to create, uh, uh, let, let's say, uh, gener generators for certain simple low-level language, which is even lower level than, uh, for example, JVM bytecode, because it doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't have object model. And instead, it, uh, it pretty much relies upon the, the direct memory and uh, primitive values manipulation. And so the values uh, which, uh, uh, which have been operated are pretty simple. It's not, it's not like uh, you have operation like invoke method on certain object. Instead, you have operation like uh, call a function, put an integer in, into virtual value, and LVM toolchain provides uh, uh, mechanism to translate that input into the machine code for the particular target which is selected. I see. So, but it's also you mentioned that it's got uh, what would be equivalent of the its own bytecode, which you call bitcode, right? Yes, because it's not, it's not parked on on a byte boundary essentially. <laughs> that's why it's bitcode. Uh, okay, and uh, okay, so that's kind of like an intermediate. Uh, language like a, well, they call it IR, right? Intermediate representation. And that's yes. what gets translated. So LLVM, so basically you're targeting LLVM and then LLVM is targeting all of the different platforms, right? To target LLVM, as I mentioned, LLVM essentially provides your raw uh, computation facilities. However, to implement a high-level language like Kotlin, you need to provide it with certain uh, memory management facilities, interoperability facilities, and we also provide those. And then all of these targets you mentioned, there is Windows, there's uh, Mac OS, Linux, and obviously there's also iOS, right? Uh -huh. and, and even WebAssembly as well. And so. WebAssembly, right. Well, that's that's the new buzzword that's, um, that's going around now. Um, so with iOS, now this obviously opens up the door to some of the things that we've been seeing, which is, you know, the ability to share your code across multiple platforms, whether you're writing for Android or for iOS, right? And especially when combined with the new new feature of the Kotlin language, which, which is called multi-platform projects, which allows to, uh, to, to think about the project which actually compiles for different targets and, uh, and uh, organizes source code accordingly. Now, a couple of things that you mentioned was memory management and, and interop, and, and we're going to dig into each of these. But, you know, let, first, let's take a step back. Now, last time that I worked with a language that compiled to native was Delphi. 
or depending on where you came from, it was also pronounced Delphi. And and there I had, you know, it was very modular to Pascal syntax style. And, you know, I haven't touched C for, for over 20, 25 years, right? But now that I'm doing Kotlin, with Kotlin native, you know, Am I just, do I have like the same set of language constructs, whether I'm targeting Kotlin native or I'm targeting Kotlin JVM? Or, I mean, the, the language remains the same independently of the, the platform, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. And it's, it's a very good question, actually, because it's a source of the common misunderstanding. People either think that... Uh, uh, difference is too dramatic or they believe that there is no difference and actually both are, both statements are not correct the truth is somewhere in between <laughs> so, uh, so essentially what you've got in uh, in kotlin native is is the same standard library as as you have in kotlin jvm or in kotlin js which means that you could write uh, applications in pure kotlin uh um, and compile it for different targets without much ado. Uh, although in uh, practical environments, uh, it's pretty uncommon that you write uh, applications uh, standing in, in nowhere. It usually uh, cooperates with the frameworks, with APIs on the platforms, and so on. Uh, so significant part of uh, Kotlin native is actually an interoperability facility where where you could uh, uh, interact with either C or Objective-C in natural way. Well, in reality, of course, it's pretty subjective. However, uh, we try to achieve that uh, uh, interop with the Swift and with Objective-C is, uh, is pretty natural in a sense that it works on, on the level uh, of objects and uh, methods calls. So, uh, so there is one-to-one -one mapping between uh, object types, uh, protocols, interfaces uh, uh, between languages. Uh, so we try, we try to uh, make them cooperate as close as possible. And regarding interoperability with C language, it's a different because C is not about objects. Uh, it's not about uh, uh, object-oriented concept at all. It's, uh, it's mostly Portable assembly, <laughs> yes. So it's about pointers, about functions, and we do interpret on the level of uh, pointers, functions, uh, uh, date, uh, memory layout, let's say, right, uh, and and uh, and the primitive types, of course. So we try to provide easy access to uh, to see APIs. Okay, and it should. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting result. What we get is sometimes Kotlin native becomes a better version of a C in the sense that uh, sometimes we the strict typing of uh, of a Kotlin native provides uh, uh, nice F effects on a written on programs written in Kotlin native. The libraries that you mentioned, I, I'd like to understand how this is being mapped uh, under the covers and how, how we do the interrupt. But if we focus on the language construct itself, like the language, even if we even take away the standard library, right? The idea is that essentially it's the same language independently of the platform, correct? So yes. if I like, if I'm targeting the JVM, I can create a class, and if I'm targeting native, I can create a class and I can instantiate, you know, um, inv invoke methods on that class, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? 
Absolutely. Okay. So now this leads me to the next question, which we're going to cover, which is memory management, right? Now, on the JVM, I've got uh, managed memory. So, you know, I, I don't have to worry. Like the, the last time, as I said, that I had to worry about freeing a pointer and, and sending it to nil was with Delphi, which the, the advancement there was that they combined free and nil in a single uh, function call. Now, on Kotlin native, do I have to worry about memory management? Because given that there is no kind of like garbage collection that, that you have on the JVM? It's also a very good question. And uh, uh, naive answer is no, you don't have to worry about memory management when you write a pure Kotlin programs. Because uh, what we implemented as a part of our runtime is uh, functionality which allows uh, to automatically manage memory in a way similar to uh, to JVM runtime does, although with a different mechanism. So that uh, most uh, modern JVM runtimes, they use uh, tracing collectors uh, and uh, what we use in Kotlin native is, is automated reference counter with, uh, uh, with additional uh, cycle collector mechanism allowing to search for cycles in memory. Okay, However, you, before continuing, uh, you threw a lot of words out there, right? Automatic reference counting with cycle collectors. Now, for those not familiar with that, could you explain what each of those things are? Oh, it's, a, it's, it's very good that you mentioned that. <laughs> yes, sure. Uh, uh, object me Automatic memory management is essentially running a certain algorithm on a graph. Uh, on a graph of objects referring each other, and uh, you prefer uh, and runtime performs a certain uh, computation on that graph. Um, essentially, it computes which uh, objects are still uh, valuable to a programmer and and could be could be used later on, and so they couldn't be thrown away. And which objects are garbage and they have to be thrown away um, one uh, once it's uh, uh, it, it decides so by by the runtime. Uh, so this computation can be can be performed using two different uh, strategies. Mm. One is so-called uh, uh, tracing collector, which is uh, essentially traversing that graph from certain set of root objects. Usually, in most modern runtimes, those root objects cons you know, consist of uh, objects currently being on a stack of of running threads. And and few uh, auxiliary uh, system objects. Mm. And other strategy is uh, automatic reference count, which is uh, mm, attributing to each uh, uh, node of the graph uh, the counter, which which is the number of incoming incoming references to that particular object. So once it reach it reach zero, it means nobody actually needs that object, and it could be thrown away. Uh, however, it could not, uh, for many structures seen in modern programming, like uh, cy cyclical structures, for example, uh, think of a linked list where the last uh, elements uh, points to the first one. This is a cy cy cyclical structure. For that structure, uh, not a single element will get a zero reference counter. However, it, it is possible that the uh, this list is no longer access accessible from from the main program so that's why you need an additional analysis 
on top of on top of your object draft, which ensures that uh, uh, ref uh, structures which uh, which are not needed uh, are collected, even even if uh, the re incoming reference counter is uh, is not zero. So that's why we need we, when we implemented the reference counting approach, we also need to augment it with the cycle collection. Where does the relationship with weak references come in here, right? Because uh, weak references are are essentially uh, references that shouldn't be taken into account when doing garbage collection, right? Yes, it's essentially a poor man's solution, which uh, which allows you to to keep a pure reference counted scheme and without introduction of of the cyclic collector, uh, uh, still be able to create. Uh, object graph which do contain cycles, you just uh, manually break certain elements in the, in the site structure so that it, it doesn't actually form uh, a fully like uh, cyclic, uh, fully cyc yeah. cyclic structure. So that's, uh, that's why it's needed, for example, in languages like Swift. Okay, but recently I saw a GitHub commit, I think it was by you that uh, said added support for weak references, right? So- uh, Yes, correct. I implement uh, different uh, weak references. I use the if you actually if you look at the Java APIs regarding references, uh, there are even three types of references in Java, which is called uh, weak reference, soft reference, uh, and phantom reference. So, <laughs> so for Java, it's not enough to have uh, uh, only strong references, uh, but it also has three kinds of other references. And so I implemented the semantics of one of those, which is essentially a weak reference as the pointer to an object which is no longer needed. And, uh, and, and you need to know about that particular fact. This, uh, this mechanism is somewhat orthogonal to the way to break uh, uh, cycles and cyclical structure. This is a way to create uh, uh, things like uh, caches, for example, where uh, where you, uh, you you're okay with storing certain image or data, which is a pretty big in in a structure. However, you you don't mind if it if it go away at certain point, and you just need to know about the, about that fact because you don't want a holding reference. Okay. So that's why I implemented the weak reference in a Kotlin native. When we were speaking initially about uh, memory management, you said it's kind of like a naive person's approach would be that you don't have to worry. And you you explained that we have ARC and we're cycle collectors. So if we have all of this, why shouldn't I, because you kind of implied that I do kind of need to worry about memory management. Is that true? Uh, yes. Unf yes. Unfortunately, it's true for programs which are not written in pure Kotlin, which is a pretty common situation, I guess. Uh, and if if the program need to integrate with uh, something like Objective C APIs or even worse with C APIs, then it need to provide uh, respective APIs with row pointers. For example, if we talk about C, and when you pass a row pointer, uh, you need understanding about the lifetime of 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 the pointer that you pass. It's uh, and it's not actually in a signature of the API. If you look at the signature of a function written in C, and, and you see like a char star, you do not know how long that uh, the char star you passed there uh, have to live so that uh, uh, 
some APIs can just use it during the call and you're okay to free it after the call. Some other have a contract like, uh, okay, uh, once you call my my operation, this is this is my pointer. It have to be valid until you, for example, stop the operation. So, and in between of those two operations, you need to you need to ensure that the pointer is stable. Uh, that's why when in, uh, interacting with existing APIs, you need to think about about it. And so we uh, provided in uh, interoperability uh, helper functions. Uh, we provide a various mechanism which allows to simplify. By that so that for example uh, we can match uh, lifetime of a pointer to certain uh, to scope of a certain lambda in uh, uh, in and once you leave that lambda then the pointer is being destroyed and no longer valid but while in this lambda it's it's valid that's what we call memscoped so would it be fair to say that as long as I'm only writing Kotlin code, in my native application. Uh, now, whether or not the reality is, could you actually do that? Because you have to, you know, if that app is going to do anything useful, which is interrupt with the system in some way or form, you know, but as long as I'm writing Kotlin code, I'm safe that I don't need to worry about memory management? Uh, well, you don't have to think about it in the same way as you don't have to think about it in Java. Okay. And, and you know, in Java, it's not, perfectly true in the sense that uh, you still can keep uh, uh, references you forgot it in some in some single tone or in, in some top level structure and you store these references and it holds like a huge object subgraph under it and uh, and you screw it essentially yeah. you have a memory although although you do have automated memory management and it, it has no box it everything is okay but uh, it's an application problem Right. Just can be deduced by by the runtime that you, you do not really need the particular component. So you don't need to think it in the same way that you don't need it in Java. Okay, but when it comes to interop, which you know one of the main selling points or how we've always positioned Kotlin is is about trying to embrace and leverage the existing ecosystem that we have. Right. I mean, when you look at Kotlin JavaScript. We interact and interoperate with with node modules and AMD, with uh, Kotlin the JVM. You know we we provide uh, seamless interoperability with with Java. Uh, and in the case of Kotlin native, you said that we're providing interoperability with C and Objective C, right? And Swift and Swift as long as. Uh... As Swift interoperates with Objective C, and we provide we interoperate with Objective C in the form of uh, representing our headers as Objective C headers, uh, uh, we also interoperate with Swift. Okay, so now let's take a Kotlin application, uh, a native application, right? And I'm going to do something really simple, like for instance, uh, read from a file, parse some contents, and uh, end the console application. Uh, mm -hmm. Now. In order to do that, how much of that comes? Because you mentioned also that there are some things that we ship as part of the standard library. So does, for example, file management come as part of the standard library? Or is that something that I need to call out uh, to C libraries in order to be able to implement that functionality? We are not free to extend the standard libraries without uh, agree agreement with, uh, with the rest of the Kotlin, with Standardization and so on. So, 
so we, we not extended the Kotlin standard library with uh, file operations. However, we fully understand the need for to make those operations. So uh, what we did, we implemented so-called the platform libraries. Platform libraries are essentially um, uh, Kotlin representation of the library standard for the platform for which you compile for. For example, if it is Linux, then it's uh, it's a presentation of POSIX APIs and also of some Linux-specific APIs which are available on the platform. If you're talking about Windows, then it's a, it's a full set of Win32 APIs along with uh, some basic POSIX APIs and so on. So on iOS, it means it's all Apple frameworks which are available in the, in the Xcode version we compile against. So. Uh, so we uh, so practically speaking it means that uh, uh, without much problem an application developer can use uh, uh, libraries uh, which are available on his or her platform beyond this uh, you offer interoperability with c so essentially any c library that is out there i can interact with with kotlin native right Okay, yeah. Uh, so it's not only uh, standard li libraries like platform libraries which are available to developer, right? But any arbitrary library. So how we do that? Um, of course, we're very lazy as a typical programmer. So we we didn't provide a, a handwritten uh, wrappers around uh, like POSIX APIs or Windows API because they're huge. It would be too boring to write those. So what we did instead, we we used uh, Another amazing part of LVM project, which is called Libsylang. It's a library which encapsulates a C language front-end. So front-end and compiler terminology, it's a part of the compiler which reads the source code and produces certain uh, tree-like representation of, uh, of the source code. So we took this Libsylang uh, to understand the, the headers of uh, um, uh, of, of a library and create the matching Kotlin bindings. So this, and when we wrap this functionality in, into the tool we call Cintero. It's a, it's, a it's a tool which takes an input in a form of a definition files which describes, I wanna take this, this, and this header and want to create a, a wrappers for all declarations which are available in, that, uh, uh, in, in, that, in those headers. And as a result, uh, you get produced what we call the Klib. It's a uh, shorthand for Kotlin library format. It's uh, it's a library format which which can be used to link against um, that particular uh, set of headers in in Kotlin terms. So, and this way, for example, uh, things like. Uh, uh, JPEG libraries, uh, encryption library, whatever you can think of uh, written in C could be used from Kotlin native. So then my code, you know, as a developer that's writing Kotlin native, I run this C interop that gives me uh, the, the Klib, which then I call out from my code and Klib in turn internally is, is the one that is calling out to the C library correct? Uh, yes, correct. Right. So does that mean that, you know, one of the benefits of native applications is that you don't have to package an entire runtime to go with it and a whole bunch of 
you know, the, the pain points that we often suffer when we're talking about class paths and, and stuff in on the JVM. So how does that play with, I want to create a self-executable application? Can I statically link that library into my uh, executable? Absolutely. Actually, uh, there is a, an Kotlin native and an other native development tool chain as well. It's a very strong definition and distinction between uh, a compile time artifact and a runtime artifact. In, in Java, fortunately or unfortunately, due to very late binding of a language, um, it's uh, it's not uncommon to think about jar as, as a both artifact to compile against and as an artifact to ship uh, with with a final uh, program but it's not the case for the native development for for native development it's pretty typical to um, have compile time artifact call it like a static library or klib in our case uh, give it as an input to the compiler and as a result get uh, uh, binary which contains uh, everything you need to run. Uh, so this is this is the case. Calibs are not a runtime artifact, they're just compile time artifact. Makes sense. Now, going back to, and, and actually some of the tooling stuff uh, I wanna touch up on later on, but I wanna step back to uh, some of the aspects around this interop. Because when you look at uh, Kotlin, right, and you look at C, Obviously, there's an impedance mismatch there, right? You go from, you know, an object-oriented language with functional constructs to, well, C. Uh, so how is that, like, how do you map things? Like, for, in for instance, uh, what is an integer? What are the primitive types mapped to from Kotlin to C? How are the how are classes mapped? How how are the, how are these things working? And like one of the examples you brought up, which is like a char star, which is a, a pointer to uh, characters. How is that mapped in Kotlin? Oh, that's uh, <laughs> you raise a very good question during this podcast. Thank you very much, because that's a very hard question, and we had uh, discussed it for a long time before at the very beginning of the project to provide a correct mapping. So, with the types like int, it's pretty easy in a sense because we already have a JVM which is similar to. Uh, native in that regard because uh, in Java there is a distinct integer type which is uh, which is marked to like primitive C style integer in, in runtime and there is a Java length integer which is box type which uh, uh, represent uh, types uh, in a boxed manner so in a sense whenever you, you want an integer as, as a value uh, you uh, you just uh, uh, use uh, integer type uh, as like 32-bit value stored in a register. But when you need an integer as an object concept, uh, for example, as a key or value in a map, for example, where uh, in, in such a case, you use a boxing, which which wraps an integer and uh, stores it in an object-oriented manner so that it has uh, uh, object interfaces and this is being handled automatically by the compiler so so unlike unlike java kotlin uh, includes uh, int into into the object hierarchy so formally speaking int is an instance of any in uh, uh, in kotlin unlike in 
int uh, small, small case is not a subtype of Java-like object in Java. So here, uh, here Kotlin as a language helped us to, to provide uh, seamless interoperability. And once we talk about uh, string mapping, it's also pretty fancy because string is so popular type that uh, <laughs> appropriate mapping of uh, string types is very important. So what we did, we essentially mapped every uh, char star in APIs to accept a Kotlin string in its place, unless it's specifically marked in a definition file that uh, here you don't uh, you, you don't do that, and you instead need to pass a row C pointer. It's being done because some uh, <laughs> platforms, like um, for example Win32, has a very interesting convention against that. Uh, uh, for example, there is a APIs in Win32 which accepts uh, uh, char star. However, this char star could be would have a predefined value like 42 or whatever, uh, which means uh, a certain resource. So it's the load load bitmap, for example. Yeah. So so for some very special cases, we do not perform uh, uh, automatic uh, conversion between uh, Kotlin string and uh, const char star and CAPI and let the uh, let the developer handle handle this mapping uh, uh, herself. Now, when it comes to memory management, uh, you spoke around about you know giving the the developer the ability to have flexibility to kind of manually manage uh, memory, and, and one of these things that you mentioned was memscoped. So, what are the what are the primitive constructs that that a developer has to actually allocate? Uh, pointers and and free them etc with with Kotlin native and where are these provided are they are they part of the standard library or how how are they get how are they provided uh, what we do have is essentially a standard interoperability library which is not uh, uh, like uh, doc documentation wise part of the standard library but it's available to every Kotlin native program. So in a sense, it's a part of a, of a standard environment in, uh, in Kotlin native. And if we talk about allocation of memory, there are different uh, ways to think about it. One is uh, C, C APIs like malloc and free, they do manage memory. And they could be called uh, by a generic uh, uh, Kotlin native mechanisms, so you could just call uh, uh, malloc, store it in a C pointer of something, uh, and and then uh, uh, then manipulate with it somehow, and then call free through the interoperability stops, and it will it will work. Uh, but it's not very convenient. So what we do provide, we provide a mechanism for um, uh, so-called uh, region memory based. Uh, memory management uh, or, or like arenas which is uh, which is a way to um, to think about lifetime of a certain c pointer uh to certain uh, certain structure and uh, uh, whenever certain structure goes out of scope or or, or is explicitly disposed we uh, free all associated objects so for example 
like all uh, stack local variables in C or C++ plus are such uh, are such objects they bound to to the frame and once uh, uh, function uh, uh, fr frame or scope is being uh, exited it's explicitly uh, destroyed uh, so we provide a mechanism for mem uh, scoped which is uh, execution bound to certain um, to scope of certain lambda we provide explicit arena mechanism which uh, uh, aggregates uh, all pointers allocated uh, in certain environment and once you say like alloc an arena you get a pointer and once you, uh, you no longer need an arena you you explicitly say dispose and everything was allocated uh, and that arena became meaningless and you can just allocate data in a global heap so we provide the uh, wrappers um, around malloc and free essentially, which returns your row pointer, which is, which is valid until, uh, until you explicitly dispose it with free operation. So this concept of arena is interesting. Um, you're essentially, it's kind of saying like I'm, I'm allocating, uh, you know, um, sorry, not allocating. I am, I'm putting a bunch of memory that I want to allocate and free at the same time in, in a single pool, right? Uh, so a as a developer that, that I want to do this, should I be using arena most of the time? Because it kind of makes sure that when I'm finished with everything, just freeing that arena, everything associated with it will be disposed. Or should I be using more things like memscoped or, uh, the native heap that you have, or do you think that it very much depends on the situation and the context? So my question is kind of like, is there a recommended way or is one more efficient than the other, or it really depends on what it is that I'm trying to do? Um, I think the recommended way is memscoped, uh, and let me explain why. Mm. Memscoped is written carefully in a sense that if there is an exception thrown from inside of that uh, uh, that memscoped block, then uh, whenever uh, memory was allocated in a scope of that uh, uh, of that memscoped block, it's being freed. If you explicitly allocate all all your memory in certain arena, then you have to ensure that disposed matter is called for sure on. Uh, uh, once, once you reach the point uh, uh, that you don't really need uh, resources allocated here, so, so probably the most error-free uh, error and uh, reliable mechanism would be a memscoped. If you talk about more control, probably uh, here I would recommend using arena. Once you have an arena, you by controlling the uh, explicit set of operation on that arena. You say, okay, so once uh, uh, I know I, I know when my data no longer makes sense, so I can I can dispose this arena. So uh, so arena give more control and and just row pointers uh, they um, mostly shall be called on objects that never die or shall be never disposed. Uh, otherwise, uh, some more fine-grained uh, way of uh, resource control better be used. 
And and this might sound like a stupid question because I don't even know if this is possible. Uh, again, given how long I've not touched C, but is is there a situation in which I could have, for example, a, a pointer that I'm passing into a C function that I'm calling as part of an interop, and that C function goes and and does something with my pointer, like you know, changing the size of it or, or pointing it to some other memory location or, or, or something that could cause uh, a leakage in, in the call that would somehow impact my code in any way? Or, or is that just, I'm just talking rubbish here? Oh, well, um, practically speaking, uh, pointer itself is, is a value. So it's passed as a value. It means even if you change it in on the Kali side, it's passed by values, so it, it not any way changes. If you change the pointer value itself, you just uh, change uh, change an integer, which uh, which doesn't uh, affect anything. But if you modify something, this pointer points to, then it's a very typical behavior of a C API, and of course it have it can have very impact on on uh, on your program for example if uh, if you access the data you was pointing to uh, beyond the beyond the boundaries and for C it's a very typical situation <laughs> yeah. in a case of pro of pro programmatic errors for example uh, then uh, you are in a big trouble and you need to uh, deploy certain memory debugging techniques I I like uh, wall grind and uh, memory sanitizers, uh, which, uh, which are available from uh, from Google. So, so those are very nice instruments, which uh, which help us uh, once once we have uh, once we have memory problems. What about the the tooling aspects, right? Uh, so right now, if I'm using uh, Kotlin targeting the JVM or Kotlin even targeting JavaScript, I can use IntelliJ IDEA. Now. I'm aware that we, when Kotlin native, right now we've got everything that can run via the command line. Uh, but when it comes to IDEs, we launched a plugin for C line, which is our C slash C plus plus IDE, which allows you to write Kotlin code targeting Kotlin native with um, inside C line. Now. My question is, C-Line uses uh, CMake, which is an entirely different, uh, you know, uh, build system. And some of the examples that are on the GitHub repository, a lot of them are using Gradle. What is the story here? Why, why are, how, and, and this, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, impedance or the differentiation between you know, if I'm using an IDE, I'm using C, and if I'm using command line, I've got to use Gradle. Where, where is this going? Uh, that's a very, very good question, and actually uh, also a pain point of the project. So what we try to achieve and what I'm strongly advocating for is uh, using Gradle as the main build, uh, build tool. And reason here is a pretty straightforward. Uh, we want a multi-platform project to be a success, and so for and for good multi-platform story, we uh, we invest in a, in a good Gradle plugin with a good good uh, MPP support, and 
there is nothing like that uh, for CMake and never never will be because CMake is not intended to to build uh, JavaScript or or JVM uh, targets. Uh, so, uh, so story about uh, build tool is, is we uh, we are working very hard on getting uh, uh, Gradle supported in ID, which is C line, and in Upcode, which which is also uh, intended to work well with uh, uh, with Kotlin native eventually. So they will have uh, support for Gradle and uh, for building. Uh, one shall be using Gradle. Uh, Great. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Nikolai. Thanks for coming on. And I know that there's so much more to Kotlin Native to cover. And uh, most definitely, you'll come back on the show at another time and discuss some of these things. But thank you very much for coming on. Uh, thank you, Hadi.